Welcome back to Being Invested, the podcast where we explore the personal stories of the people who make the markets. I'm your host, Susanna Nicklin, and I'm extremely excited to bring you today's episode with my guest, Andrew Noble. It was a thrill and a really rich conversation, not only because Andrew is a hugely experienced and enthusiastic early stage investor, but also because he is the first Olympic athlete on the podcast, and hopefully not the last. Andrew was an alpine skier for Team GB, and way, way back when God was a girl, I did some racing myself in high school in New England. It was exhilarating, but nothing like the feats of speed, technique, and daring that Andrew and his teammates mastered. I am in awe of the strength, agility, courage, and mental sharpness needed to fly through the gates. And these are all great qualities for high growth investing, as we discuss in today's many layered episode exploring how the resilience learned from coming back after serious injury helped Andrew turn what could have been setbacks in his career trajectory into springboards, what technique he uses to perform under pressure, how emotion influences venture investing, and much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And thank you so much for listening to Being Invested. If you like the podcast, please stay tuned for each monthly episode and spread the word. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Being Invested. I'm here today with Andrew Noble, who is talking to me from a very frosty Edinburgh. However, Andrew is no stranger to the cold, and his route to becoming partner at Par Equity, based in Edinburgh, is fascinating. He skipped university for an education on the slopes, ultimately competing for Team GB in alpine skiing at the 2010 Winter Olympics. He then dipped his toes in the water of early stage investing before heading to INSEAD to get an MBA. Familiar with seeing off the competition, Andrew stayed in the elite ranks for a couple of years as a management consultant with McKinsey, where he specialized in sales optimization for FTSE 100 clients. But he'd always wanted to build a business, so he stepped off piste to found a startup and a management buy-in vehicle before rejoining Par Equity in May 2019. PAR invests in innovative, high-growth technology companies across Northern England, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. Andrew led the recent fundraising for PAR's first institutional VC fund, which closed successfully this summer. He has personally invested in more than 50 innovative, high-growth companies since 2008, and we will dive into what qualities and skills this calls on, as well as what he's learned. Outside of the office, Andrew has a young family, and he can be found running after a ball on a squash, football, tennis, or paddle court. Andrew, thank you for joining me, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Terrific. So, Andrew, I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and I'd love to start at the beginning. Let's start with Andrew the Skier sort of age 10 to 15. And maybe you could tell us about how you fell in love with skiing. I mean, I don't know why anyone would not fall in love with skiing, but you really fell in love with skiing. And did you immediately set your sights on the Olympics? Um, And I'm curious to know how you had to structure your life in Scotland to have the same time on decent snow that someone in the Alps or Rockies might. Yeah, no, we're going right back to the beginning um no thank you so um i uh i i i grew up in edinburgh um i have got two an older brother and an older sister so i was very much sort of dragged around uh to various places as a result of 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 their sort of sporting passions um i i did a lot of sport when i was growing up and i really enjoyed the competition first and foremost um, and what I quickly found with skiing is that I was quite good at it, but it was probably because it was on a relative scale. So skiing is not a big sport in the UK. Um, as you might imagine, it's a lowland nation. And, and very quickly, I found myself to be sort of either winning competitions or up there getting podiums. And as a young child, when you experience sort of success in some shape or form, suddenly you enjoy the sport um, a lot as well. So um, immediately at a very young age, I mean, starting at the age of six, uh, I, I started ski racing, which was great fun. Um, uh, got got the bug and uh, was doing various races around the UK. 
And then at the age of 10, I was off out racing in, in, in the Alps uh, around Europe as well. Um, I even spent some time, there was a new ski academy called the British Ski Academy that was set up uh, when I was about 11. I was one of the first cohort of skiers that went through that. Um, and really throughout my sort of early teenage years, I find myself sort of um, jumping between school in, in, in Edinburgh, uh, skiing up in the, uh, the, the sort of windy, rainy slopes of Scotland um, uh, during the winters. And then, of course, out to the Alps um, uh, at various times throughout the year and, and school holidays. So I really was living the sort of life of Riley at a very young age. And it was great fun, um, very, very enjoyable. Um, I have to say, as a parent of now three young children, I can't imagine doing the same thing with my kids because the sacrifices that one goes through. I mean, I didn't I, I, I've stopped spending Christmas at home with my family from the age of 10. Uh, and the amount of injuries and accidents that I put my parents through, I just can't imagine the same going through the same experience um, today. But it was it was great fun, and it was really the sort of um, the, the sort of founding platform for everything else that I've gone on to do with the rest of my life. And what an amazing early adolescence to have! But you must have also had to make some sacrifices, you know, not having. I guess, the normal friendships or feeling. And sometimes at that age, it's hard to feel like you don't belong. So how, where did you get your sense of belonging or, or routine from? Certainly the family support was critical um, and, and, and fundamental to being able to achieve things, both, both at home in the, in the classroom, but then also juggling that with quite a busy sort of um, uh, sporting career and, and interest. I always felt um, some belonging, uh, both, both in Edinburgh and friends at home, but also growing up in a sporting environment, um, you grew up quite you grew up quite quickly. You know, I spent a lot of my early years with people who were three, four years older than me. So I grew up quite quickly, learned a lot from from my peers in the industry, um, and I and I think that helped to some extent. Um, uh, and of course, you know, the, the, my trials and tribulations throughout that period as well. And I had a, a very horrific accident when I was when I was fifteen, where I broke my back, ruptured my spleen punched a lung um uh, and that was a big reset for me at that age um it's fair to say that i fell out of love with the sport for two or three years um and used that time instead to focus on my on my sort of academic um uh qualifications um but at the age of 18 when i came to the end of uh, end of school i really had that choice between university and professional sport and i really felt as though Skiing, professional skiing, was an itch that I needed to scratch. I, I was very good, but I really wanted to give it a go and see how far I could take it. So at the age of 18, I, I decided not to go to university and, and, and end up joining the, um, the Scottish ski team at the time. And after my first year in the Scottish ski team, I then graduated up to the British ski team and kept going through that process um, until eventually, and, and, as you said, competed in the Olympics in 2010, which was you know a marvellous experience. And just going back to the accident, um, I hope that's okay to to ask about that a little bit more because that sounds like it was a setback, but it also sounds like it gave you time to recognize what skiing meant to you and for you to regroup and maybe find a new drive. I'm just wondering how you handled that emotionally and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a lot of time to think about things. I mean, it, break, when you break your back, and I broke the vertebrae of T4 and T5. So in many ways, I was told that I broke my back in the right place because I had no long-term um, implications as a result of that. And, um, and and it was able to heal. But I spent uh, the best part of about three weeks um, lying on my back. I, I, I wasn't allowed to get up and move well you know to allow the the, the time for the body to heal and the, the, the bones to protect themselves so you do think a lot about things at that time and um when i was younger i was I, you know I, I used to do all sorts of ski jumps and and really sort of take a lot of risk and i think at that time it really it was a bit of a reset for me about First of all, my ski career, what I wanted to be, what I, you know, what I wanted to do, was I going to be a downhiller or a more technical ski racer? And it certainly gave me appreciation for the risk that one's taking when you are ski racing. 
I think it also allowed me to reset and think about what's important in life. I think it's very easy as a sportsman or a sportswoman to have a singular focus and drive. And I think it gave me a realization that you need to focus on other things as well. You need to have other interests. And it gave me that freedom and opportunity to explore new friendship groups or academic interests as well. Um, and so it, it, it gave me definitely a reset and a fresh perspective, which was helpful for that period of time, especially at the age of 15. Did you did you come off a jump or what was walk, walk me through the accident, if you don't mind? I was um, a typical boisterous 15 year old and I, um, I did a ski jump that I'd been doing all week, except for this particular time there. I was skiing with a, a couple of girls that I, I fancied at the time. And I thought I'm going <laughs> to throw myself off this jump and really impress them. And of course, I got it completely wrong, Susanna. So um, I overshot where I was meant to land and I landed on the flat icy piece at the very bottom. Um, and it was a complete yard sale. So equipment everywhere. And I was lying at the bottom feeling very sorry for myself. So. Uh, needless to say, no no one was impressed. When you look back at that decision and your who you were when you took off on that jump, do you recognize yourself still in that? Elements of it. I think the the, the pre-jump Andrew was a, certainly a lot more risk-free. And I think nowadays that risk is much, much has a much greater temper to it. Um so that's probably the biggest learning. And I, I wonder whether there's anything I've taken from that to, to sort of a career in BC. But, um, but who knows? Maybe we can unpick that later. I'd like to. I think there's a lot to that. You know, attitude to risk, risk tolerance, you know, risk measurement in your inner state is so fascinating. And what life events determine that. Yeah. Certainly, as I as I flew through the air, I, you, you, there's a very, when, you, when, when you're in that situation, you can feel it in your stomach. It's a, you're, you're not in control and it's not a nice feeling. And I think sometimes in a business world, when, when we aren't in control, we really feel it you know, deep in our stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was definitely a feeling that I had at that moment in time and one that I try not to <laughs> try not to replicate today. So what you're saying is that actually there's almost a visceral feeling that you can recognize that helps you understand Untolerable risk now. Yes, but thankfully I don't experience it too much. I have to say, and you can feel it early and do something about it, um, which you can't sometimes do when you've just actually thrown yourself into the air over icy slopes. <laughs> um, you said something about the importance or the value of having kind of other elements of life, uh, and it reminded me of another great Scottish athlete that I've come. Um, to know or been familiar with through her writing and speaking. Um, Leslie Patterson wrote The Brave Athlete and co-wrote the script for All Quiet on the Western Front. And she really talks about that as well. Um, And she also had some setbacks as you did. I think there are a lot of traditional skills that one develops from professional sport um, that you can take into the business environment. Um, I've learned a lot more about those skills perhaps 15 years later than I knew at the time. I mean, if I rewind 15 years when I took myself from professional sport into business, I used to talk a lot about transitional skills because I had no direct experience in a given environment. But I didn't really know what I was talking about. I mean, I felt like I you know, could, could help with these sorts of aspects. But I was coming from a world where focus, determination, clear goal setting, breaking those goals down into achieve, achievable milestones and targets. These were all normal behaviors for someone like me in that environment. But actually, one, only once you're in the business as well do you understand that actually, you know, not everyone processes information like that. Not everyone has the same aspirations and ambitions. Um, so I do think the, there was an element of that coming through in terms of those transitional skills. Um, dealing with adversity and setbacks, so injuries or not being selected for a team. I was, I, I was striving for the 2006 Olympic team. and I didn't quite make it. Um, and you deal with these setbacks and then you push forward again. And I think that's something that we all experience in business, that we need that that grit, that resilience, that determination to overcome challenges that we perhaps didn't think were achievable before. Are there any specific techniques that you learned that helps you uh, to do that, that you still draw on? Are there any internal mantras or patterns of behavior or networks that you draw on? I wouldn't say there were certain tools or techniques, 
And it goes both ways. You, you, so there's this desire for self-criticism and self-improvement all the time. And you're, you know, in sport, you're measured on a daily basis. Performance is 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 analyzed on a daily basis. And I think you can't help but but keep doing that for the rest of your career to improve yourself all the time. One one trick that I did take away from professional sport was the ability to uh, reset one's mind. Um, so quite often when you're standing at the top of a race, you feel that buildup of nerve, uh, nervousness and energy. And you need to be centered uh, before you throw yourself down the mountain and try and compete uh, with some of the best skiers from Switzerland and Norway and so on. And so one of the, we used to do a lot of... Um, uh, uh, we had a psychologist that helped us, you know, overcome some of these emotions. And and very, a very simple trick that I used to do was, and I still do to this day, is is have my um my 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 thumb and middle finger, and so I clasp the two together, and I use that. I sort of train myself to think of you know positive moments where I've done something really really well. Um, so I've delivered a great presentation, or I really handled that meeting exceptionally well. And so whenever I have a, a some downtime i might sort of just just push my thumb and middle finger together and think of those positive thoughts and what i find is that when i when i'm in a tricky situation when i'm about to go on a, a podcast and i'm feeling nervous I'll, I'll, I'll do that and i'll push my thumb, thumb and middle finger together and it and it has this um uh it creates positive energy in in my body i find and it overcomes that nervousness. And I find it's quite a good trick, or if I'm if I'm on a panel or if I'm going on stage to give a presentation, I find it quite a good trick to center oneself. Um, so I find that as a tool quite helpful. That's really interesting. It's in NLP, it's kind of what they do with anchoring. In terms of the other mindset habits and other personal changes that you went through, you chose not to go to university you stuck with it you came back from not getting selected in 2006 were selected for 2010 performed there is there anything you want to share with us about what it was like competing at the olympics a, a number of aspects of that so first of all going into the 2010 olympics i was not i mean i, I had stages in my career where i really was performing at, at the top so in training, I was very competitive with some of the best athletes in the world, those who are ranked in the top five. Um, but I never fully delivered that in some of the races that I was competing in. And by the time the Olympics came around, we were in a very unfortunate position uh, as Team Team GB and the British Ski Team because our ski federation went bust six weeks beforehand. So in the lead up to the Games, um, I was not in a position to, to medal. And bear in mind that when you're a kid growing up, you don't dream of just going to the Olympics. You dream of getting on a podium and getting a gold medal. So that adjustment was, was it, that was a challenge in its own right, um, to be going to the Olympics, but knowing that I was sort of making up the numbers. And I, and I sort of justified that to myself and that I said, okay, well, maybe I'm going to go another four years. And this is, this is me blooding myself into the Olympic environment. And then in four years' time, I'll have the opportunity to get, to get a medal. But um, looking back, some of the biggest takeaways for me was, first of all, having my, my family there um, and sharing that experience with my family. Um, and I think now as a, as a father and, and having three young children and imagining what that must have been like for, for my parents, you know, having supported me through my ski career from a very young age to then be racing in the pinnacle of, of, of my sport, I think that must have been quite an amazing experience for them. And I certainly enjoyed sharing that with them. So it was definitely a huge Huge takeaway. I also got the chance to rub shoulders with some incredible people through that process. So Clive Woodward, for example, was the, the chef de mission of the Winter Olympics at the time. So uh, working with Clive in terms of, you know, throughout that two week period about you know what we we're trying to achieve as, as a team, as a unit. And then, of course, um, Steve Redgrave was also there um, as, an, as an ambassador to to support us as well and being able to speak with someone like steve about his own experiences um too was just was just incredible and then it i think i read somewhere or maybe in conversation you said it to me that you didn't get as far as you'd have liked to in sport and and when i heard that i thought that that's probably an axiom for almost anyone in sport maybe except steve redgrave <laughs> um but 
how did you make peace with that? When did you decide it was time to put away your boots, put, you know, hang up your skis? Did anyone in particular, any models help you psychologically to do that? Well, I think it was a bit of a hard landing for me, to be honest, because as I said, I, I felt as though I, I had another four years in me. At the time, I was, I was 25. Um, most skiers, the data shows that most skiers peak at, at the age of, sort of 29, 30. So I felt as though I had more in me. Um, I didn't feel as though the support was there, though, because obviously our federation had gone bust. We were already competing on an uneven um, playing field with, with, with other nations. And so towards the end of that season, I felt as though I, I couldn't get to the top and therefore I didn't want to make up the numbers. Um, and that's quite a difficult realisation. And when I when I came out of sport and I've spoken to a number of sports people subsequently, also ex-military personnel, it's part of your identity. Coming out of sport or military is a very difficult time and you go through this process of discovery. Um, interestingly, you mentioned Steve Redgrave. So... Um, as an example, Steve obviously won multiple gold medals across multiple Olympics. But he was telling me that it wasn't until 2009, 2010, so five, six years after his last Olympic Games, that he felt like he had um, clear uh, purpose in life, which I thought was re quite remarkable for someone of his stature. And that purpose came about because he was he was then moved into an, an ambassadorial role for the London 2012 Olympics. Mm. And he felt like he had a drive when he woke up in the morning. And in a slightly lesser way, but to the same extent, when I came out of skiing, I really didn't know who I was, what I was all about, what I wanted to achieve in my life. My identity to my friends and family had always been as a skier. And so it was about trying to find my passion, my purpose in life. And that period took about, I'd say, a year and a half, two years until I felt comfortable in my own skin with, with what I was trying to achieve. So you um, had a, a, a faster time in something than Steve Redgrave. <laughs> yes, great. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> no competition there at all. So let's talk about that, that period, that sort of in the wilderness year or two and how you did find your feet. And as I understand it, that sort of became the ground, the sort of the, the 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 sandbox for what came later a little bit in terms of um dipping your toes into early stage investing. So what what did you do during that period and then subsequently to end up at INSEAD that helped you find that purpose? I think there were, it's a really good question to that. I think there are a number of building blocks there to you know my career and what it is today. The first is taking that drive and ambition out of skiing and into something new. And I had zero experience in the business world, but was then found myself transitioning into venture capital at the time. So um, towards the end of 2010, I managed to blag an internship at Par Equity, where, where I am now. Um, and I joined as an intern for three months. And, and really, it was a combination of that drive and ambition together with a natural curiosity to really understand things and, and get under the skin of, of certain topics of certain companies and really un, uh, really sort of just build an understanding that was quite broad, uh, but also deep within certain fields, uh, helped me accelerate through that um, that learning journey and, and catch up with my peers. Because remember, at that time, I was about 26, 27, so I had some catching up to do. So there's this sort of um, natural curiosity, drive and also I think an insecurity about it as well because I, I wanted to prove myself to my colleagues at par to my peers that that I was worth something in the business world as well uh, so I remember at the time I, I think I did an exam some sort of professional qualification every two months for the first three or four years that I was with par equity I mean some of them completely irrelevant to VC investing but I just wanted to prove that I could do it and um and and that was an important part of 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 building who I am today and 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 where I am with 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 my venture capital career. So that kind of reinvention, and you took it seriously. Found pieces of paper that could begin to give some sense of of progress Absolutely. and re sort of validation. And then you decided to do an MBA um, at INSEAD. What was the value ultimately of that MBA to you? Because I think there. Are questions in people's minds sometimes about when it's appropriate, what you get out of it, is the trade-off worth it, time and money? 
and NBA certainly aren't a good fit for everyone. Um, for me, it was a perfect fit. I did have offer, offers at other uh, other business schools. Um, as you say, INSEAD was great in terms of the opportunity cost. It was a one. It is a one year MBA. It you know it encourages um, languages. That was all very attractive to me. From my own perspective, I hadn't been to university, so the idea of doing an MBA was highly attractive in terms of, again, proving myself um, academically that um, I could challenge myself in ways that I haven't been challenged before. I also wanted to build uh, a new network of contacts that I didn't have from a university experience, um, so that was you know, absolutely vital. And I think the INSEAD MBA provides that in abundance. It's got a very strong uh, alumni, but equally you have um, four to 500 people in, in, in your cohort from 80 different nationalities. So the experience set is extremely diverse um, at, at INSEAD as well and, and, and very attractive to someone like me. Um, and then finally, I, I needed a platform to take my career in a new direction. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Power Equity uh, for three or four years. I rub shoulders with some incredible entrepreneurs, some investors who've been there and done that. But ultimately, I needed that platform. And um, INSEAD allowed me to do that and to um, uh, eventually make the make the step into McKinsey. Great. So on to McKinsey. I'd love to hear a bit about what you learned by being a management consultant. And also, now that you're on the outside, thinking about how your portfolio companies spend their money um, what is the most valuable role that a consultant can still play for a company? And especially in an era of smart AI, you know, there may be a new challenges. What do you think the value remains? Um, and where, if you were the boss of McKinsey, would you be focusing efforts? My experience at McKinsey was, was, was very positive, um, both in terms of the colleagues that I was working with, many of whom are, are, are very bright, enjoyable to work with on, on these engagements, but also in terms of the types of problems that you were solving for. And I think McKinsey would be the first to say that they, they don't always get it right. But actually, the firm can add a lot of value to some specific problems that large companies might have. So what what what, sort of, what did I learn there? I mean, for me, it was an extension of my MBA at that time. Um, previously, I'd been at Par Equity. It, Correct. It was a very, you know, in a very early stage VC firm in its infancy. So I never had that structured learning environment. And, and McKinsey offered that structure to me. Um, and as someone who always craves performance and um, and feedback, uh, I got that in abundance at McKinsey. So that that was that was that was the first thing. The second is it provides you with incredibly useful uh, tool sets to work through different situations. Um, and I've taken a lot of that away from me. And the third thing is, I mean, you are dealing with often complex problems. So just approaching in any in any workplace setting, complex problem, breaking it down, and then really trying to work with your colleagues to come up with solutions as a result of it was quite helpful. So, so it's more the methodology as a result of being a consultant um, that I enjoyed. I, I felt like I wanted more agency in, in my career. Um, and I also much more enjoyed the earlier stage investment ecosystem. So suddenly I had been working with, you know, very early seed stage uh, tech companies to working with 1500 businesses. And there's a huge difference between the two. And um, uh, it was became very clear to me that I, I, I much preferred working at the earlier, earlier stage um, end of the market. Um, one of the most transferable skills, though, that I think I can take from McKinsey to now the world that, that I live and work in is that at the end of the day, in a VC, you're a minority stake investor. We do not have control um, over all aspects of the businesses that we work in. We need to work with our management teams. Um, and that sort of consultative role is really quite important, um, understanding that you're not necessarily a decision maker in each of those portfolio companies. But being able to offer advice, ask the right challenge, uh, ask the right questions and challenge in the right way, phrase the questions in the right way um, is important as a as, 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 as a VC investor. So uh, interestingly, you focused on sales. And one of the things you just said about, you know, the, the influencing the, the consultative approach, what particularly did you 
learn or now do you still use from a sales point of view that is important that you maybe import into your companies or keep in mind, even as you're building par in terms of sales methods or attitudes or approaches? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. So you introduced me as an expert in sales optimization. I mean, it's where I spent more of my time. I've never called myself an expert, but, <laughs> but it's certainly where I spent more of my time working for um, large clients on performance dashboards, for example. I mean, it might sound simple, but when you're dealing with a workforce of 60,000 people, you're thinking through, okay, what dashboards are going to encourage the right behaviors in terms of those KPIs and metrics, and what uh, um, is, is going to encourage uh, the sort of behaviors that, that you don't want. And and thinking through those sorts of problems are quite helpful, um, particularly when you're dealing with early stage businesses, because a lot of the data is quite fuzzy. It's not always clear as to the direction of travel. And so and so encouraging um, the rights of KPIs in a business is important. Um, equally, you know, another engagement that I worked on was was about sort of um, uh, right sizing a, a, a sales team, a global sales team. So how do we make sure that the um, sales efficiency productivity of your sales teams is is right sized by markets by, ge- by 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 geographies and so there's an element of that that I take into an early stage business as well but but don't get me wrong I mean the, these yeah, what an early stage business needs when you've got 30 to 40 people is very different to what an organization of 60,000 needs from a sales engine perspective it's more about the toolkits and 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 transferring those across and, and applying applying the mindset to to the problem and so you took away from McKinsey or maybe even took into McKinsey um a desire to start your own business tell us about what you did next and how you directed yourself yeah so I had um with a friend of mine we had an idea to start a business um which is on the in this of online gaming space and and to be to be quite frank, it was in the online gambling space. Um, I call it gaming because I'm always a bit embarrassed to mention gambling. Um, uh, even you know, even at the time, it felt a bit strange. But one of the reasons for mentioning it is that I left McKinsey because it was this incredible opportunity, and I still think is the, the business model innovation within it was really interesting. And I think we could have we could have shaken up the industry somewhat. But ultimately, as I worked on it full time for the best part of three months, I got to learn, know about the industry a lot more, meet more people who worked in the gambling sector. It just wasn't for me, Suzanne. I like, I, I really felt like it was not my home. I didn't feel like I, I had a passion for it. And ultimately, even if I was to be successful, my, the, the success from the business would come about from people's propensity to gamble increasing. And that didn't sit right for me. And so it was it was a big learning curve for me in terms of aligning my own um, ambitions with um, with my moral compass. And for the, for three months that I worked on it, it was very much at odds. And uh, I had, you know, I hadn't, really, I hadn't had a chance to build out a team, but I certainly built a group of advisors around the business. Uh, we had tech team working on um, on the product. But after three months, I had to pull the pin. It didn't sit right. And I didn't feel comfortable um, uh, um, exploiting this type of opportunity. Interestingly, where it took me on that journey was the opportunity to pitch to Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston, mm. um, who are of Y Combinator fame. So uh, they started Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. They've been hugely successful in backing some big, big tech companies over the years. And I somehow had the opportunity to pitch them this business in their home. And it was great. And, and actually to, to spar a little bit with someone like Paul Graham on the business model. And I remember Paul's feedback was, I mean, the whole, the whole premise behind the, the business model that we were building was that we could acquire customers at about five or six pounds versus the cost of acquisition that gambling operators go through, which is somewhere in the region of 50 to 400, depending on your, your acquisition channel. And so we were really trying to uh, um, uh, tackle that arbitrage. And I had a good sparring session with Paul Graham on it because his firm belief was that he would never invest in a company that had to acquire customers. And I thought this was quite an interesting mindset. And I was trying to challenge it by saying, no, but if your lifetime value, improve your lifetime values, you know, a, a multiple of your acquisition costs, you've got a business model there. 
But his his benchmark for an interesting business is one where you're not acquiring customers, you are solely relying on word of mouth. Your product has to be so good that your customers will tell their friends, their contacts, their colleagues about how good your product is, and you will you will build in a strong degree of virality into that model. So that net promoter score. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, that was a really fair challenge. I mean, a very high benchmark to meet, particularly yeah. as the tech industry has become increasingly competitive over the last five, 10 years. Um, but it's a good benchmark to hold oneself against. You know, can can this can, can you can you build your customer base without spending one one penny on a customer acquisition? So you learned a lot from that. Not only did you learn the importance of the why and the purpose and feeling kind of aligned in terms of principles and values, um, but I'm just interested to know how you then formulated what to do next. You know, what did you draw on in terms of motivation and and how did you focus your efforts? So, I mean, this is where it sort of starts to move into the world of um Building building businesses really at its heart. Um, I was inspired by a course that I did at INSEAD uh, with, a, with a very strappy name called Realizing Entrepreneurial Potential. Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentally, it was all about search funds. How, as relatively young and ambitious professionals, rather than building a business from the ground up, you could, together with some investors and, and, and colleagues, buy one and then improve it and make it better. So it's quite an arrogant business model um, as a route into entrepreneurship that didn't necessarily need the creativity of an idea. Mm. Um, so I started, a search fund was always my backup option um, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the gambling opportunity didn't work out. So I immediately, after deciding not to take the, the gambling business forward, I immediately shifted gears into the search fund. Mm. And I did a self-funded search can you, for listeners who might not be familiar, just explain what a search fund is? Yeah, so um, a search fund is a concept that was actually born out of Stanford University in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. And effectively, you would um, take one or two um, young professionals uh, who have a degree of experience, but and a lot of hunger uh, to uh, build bigger, better businesses. Um, they'll be backed by professional investors to go out and find uh, an acquisition target that they would then buy and drop themselves in as executives in that business and then grow it for a five to 10 year period to eventually sell it. So it is um, uh, a management buy-in solution. Um, It's from an investor's point of view, it's it's private equity, but but what I would call rifle shot rather than building a portfolio. Um, So it's very high risk. Um, but if you get the conditions right, it's possible to make a very successful uh, return on that kind of venture. Ultimately, Susanna, I looked at 300 businesses around Scotland. Uh, I met with 50 owner managers in the space of 18 months, and we put offers on three companies. The last one, unfortunately, fell through about four days prior to completion. I won't go into the detail behind that, but um, having been hot desking out of par at the time, I suddenly found myself uh, sort of thinking about what to do after that third acquisition didn't didn't go through, and um, the opportunity came up to rejoin par as a partner. And I thought, fantastic! I know all the partners here. I can work really well. Very complementary skill sets to my own. And you know, rather than building an all all industry type business, why not? try and build a venture capital firm. Um, mm-hmm. And so in 2019, I, I rejoined Par as a partner and um, I'm still with the firm today and very much enjoying it. What a great story in terms of, you know, you sort of, you almost went through the chain. It was almost like Par subconsciously had created these challenges for you. First, set up your own business for a little while. Imagine you're on, on the early stage founder side, then go and raise money to invest and, and get to know the Scottish market at the ground level. Uh, and so once you've passed those hurdles, my son, you may join them. <laughs> um, 
So it I love sounds- I love the way that you frame it, Susanna. I much prefer your storyline than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so you have just had a very big summer, actually. You know, after um, after working with Par um, more on a, a sort of deal by deal basis, and really helping them grow into a institutional VC and seeing that vision for that. And over the last summer. Uh, you've really had two births. Congratulations of a sort. Um, as you mentioned, you have now have a third child. Um, yeah. That is a critical milestone in your life, as well as closing the first PAR institutional fund. And it sort of gets to the point that, you know, even great investors often have to wear another hat, which is the fundraising hat. Um and that's necessary in order to be able to invest. You don't have much capital unless you have the fundraising completed successfully. So it's been a hugely tough market. Some would say one of the toughest in a decade or so. And I'm interested to know what mental models or strategies were helpful to you as you conducted the fundraise over the last year. I would agree with you that the market for fundraising, particularly for first-time institutional funds, is is not at all easy right now. It's it is challenging. Um, I mean, Par has a, technically it's our first institutional fund, but but on a synthetic basis, it's probably sort of fund four or fund five. We've been around since two thousand and eight. We've backed um, close to eighty companies. We've realised around thirty, so we can point to fantastic track record um and if i could just have two seconds going right back to 2019 and, and, and one of the reasons why i rejoined par was not just the ability to to build a venture capital firm but par in 2019 was, was certainly a diamond in the rough i mean we we've got fantastic track record backing early stage businesses um we're operating in a market that's largely overlooked by by london-based vc firms um, but no one really knew about PAR and no one really knew what we were up to in our geofocus of the north of the UK. And so there was the opportunity to come in and really lift PAR's profile. And, and that's the journey that I've really enjoyed through that time. Then, you you know, once you do that and you start to transition into raising an institutional fund, you know, you're going through that process uh, with institutional investors who don't necessarily know who PAR is. And you have to start telling that story. And it's you know it's that it's that usual thing. It's seven you know roughly seven touch points until someone feels comfortable buying your product, right? It takes a long time. And um, what I was really pleased about in the very beginning was we started the fundraising process in in two thousand and twenty one. We actually had our cornerstone investor with a sort of indicative commitment within about six weeks. So we were you know we did extremely well to secure that. Um, as as it happens with development banks in particular, um, it takes a long period of time to then go through diligence process, um, negotiations on all the key terms, um, and it, and it took best part of nine months before we got there and signed the heads of terms, um, and that in itself was a real learning curve for someone who hadn't been through that experience before. That was with Scottish National Investment Bank, is that right? That was with the Scottish National Investment Bank. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I lean heavily on, on, on my, my colleagues to support me in that role. Um, and, and Susanna, you, you and I both know Graham McDonald, who is a strategic advisor to Par Equity. Uh, Graham's got a wealth of experience in this, in this market and, and, and leaned on his um, counsel to support us through that time as well, um, which was incredibly helpful. What that meant, though, is that we then went out to market uh, with a fund um, in March 2022, and the timing could not have been any worse. So, um, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, you've then got tech stocks crashing, uh, and suddenly that denominator impact for institutional investors was was really live and kicking. And, and so we had a number of, you know, what we thought were good early conversations with investors that just ended up not really going anywhere, because either they weren't able to invest and they were jumping on calls for a sort of market research point of view um uh, or they just weren't in a position to yeah, to pull that trigger so um what mental tools did i have in place i think you wouldn't classify them as tools per se but does it does need a lot of perseverance mm. a lot of grit um discipline as well and being disciplined in the process that you run uh being able to pull in you know, key team members at the right time throughout each of those processes. 
Um, and so it was it was definitely an interesting experience for me um, to get the fund to a first close of sixty seven million of a target of a hundred. I'm hugely proud of. Um, I think as a as a team, we're hugely proud of that and be able to take the business from. Uh, our angel and EIS fund market into a strategy which has institutional backers to really support companies at inflection point of, of growth. So series A deals, 5 to 20 million, being able to support um, some incredible tech companies in the north of the UK. Um, we, we're extremely passionate about it at Core Equity and, and we're pleased to get this fund off the ground to enable that to happen. Yeah, congratulations. It's um it's a real accomplishment. You mentioned the meeting and the privilege of meeting with uh the Y Combinator partners, uh Jessica Livingston and Paul Graham while you were building your startup. And I'm interested, you know, he mentioned the metric about not investing in businesses that you need to buy customers. Um, I just wondered if you have any other observations or ways of, of thinking about businesses that you think are helpful that maybe other people don't recognize or you think are controversial or, or that there are some interesting, um, perhaps sacred cows in the market that you like to challenge? I think one of the hardest things to get right in VC is managing follow-on capital and striking the right balance between knowing when you're not going to follow your money and saying no to a portfolio company um, and when you need to be supportive um, of the management team and follow that capital to make sure that business survives the next 12, 18, 24 months to prove the um, milestones that it needs to prove either to get to it to a successful exit or or indeed uh, its next its next fundraise. And I think a lot of um, early you know GPS who are early in their career, don't fully recognize the challenges that come with that. It's very easy to deploy capital. It's much harder to get it back. And it's even harder to know how to manage that 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 follow-on position. And I say that from the point of view of you've originally backed that company, that strategy, that management team. And so sometimes you're at odds with yourself because by saying no to the follow-on round, you're really you're really saying that you got it wrong. Mm. And not all managers like to accept that. I think the other interesting aspect of it is, you know, it's, it's more in our, as, as humans, we want to believe the best in someone. Mm. And so when a management team says we didn't hit the milestones because of X, Y, and Z, your job as a VC is to really cut through a lot of that noise and understand to what extent that holds true. To what extent is it a market problem? Is it a product problem? Is it a is it a leadership problem? And understand whether you're willing to commit further capital to the business to enable it to hit those milestones. And I think there's some really difficult dynamics when you're talking about follow-on capital. But you know, we talk about it as a team in the, in the investment committee about whether we're going to continue to support a company, its vision, and and the opportunity as well. And I and I think um, uh, getting it right is hard. Um, and I think it involves a lot of discipline from a manager. Um, we've supported, Susanna, some companies for five or six rounds through to a successful exit when no other VC was willing to support them. And in fact, it was, it was um, uh, yeah, one of our companies that delivered a near 20x return on our money. And so you need, you need to have high conviction working in the VC market and um, certainly for, the, for those follow-on rounds. I was going to ask you about emotion in VC investing because there's mm. been quite a lot of written, as you, as we all know, in in the in academic and you know peer reviewed research about emotion in public market investing. And I'm really interested in emotion in the private markets as well. And what you've just touched on is a great example of that because people, yeah. even in public markets, have trouble selling um, and letting go of stocks, and those are just stocks, you know. But when you're actually owning businesses where you know the people, you've worked with the people, there's relationships involved. That is much harder. I mean, you're absolutely spot on. And in the private markets um, space, um, you, you, there's no getting around this sort of emotion that you have and the vested interest that you have in businesses. Um, you are working closely with management teams. So you, you need to be aware of that. 
Um, it's also, you know, in, in terms of that, that comparison between private market and, 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 and public market, um, there is just simply less data available. Um, there are more unknowns. Um, sometimes you're backing management teams to build new markets. It's a new product. Um, you don't really know what the future looks like. Um, and therefore, you're putting a lot of your trust into the management team that you're backing as well. Uh, so I think it's important. You've got to be really aware of, of your biases, um, how these might or might not impair or color the judgment um, that you're making. And, and bundling that all together to, to make an investment decision or not, um, you know, ultimately we are paid, uh, backed by LPs to make a call on these things and make a call when it's ambiguous. That That's when you, you, you need to lean on experience as a VC to make the right decisions. On the other side, you've also got the emotions, you know, running between the team, the investment team, uh, making making those those right decisions as well. Um, so either you're working on a deal which you want to do, um, you think it's the right thing, or perhaps you know your colleagues are working on a deal and you're less close to it, but you want to be able to challenge and critique it in the right ways. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've most recently set up a positive irritant at par for deals that we're working on. So someone who you know you're really giving someone the space to um, and the structure and the framework to criticize and challenge uh, why a deal might not work. Um, and that's been quite helpful to our process as well. Um, coupled with all of that, what I what I love about the PAR model, though, is that ever since 2008, we've tried to build um, a hybrid investment vehicle. So we've got our discretionary managed capital on the one side, but we complement that with this large, engaged angel network as well. And we, we really try and fuse the two together to get the very best bits out of the angel investors. So that experience, that domain expertise, whether it's industry or technology. And then we couple that with the professionalism, the rigor, and the scale of what comes from a discretionary fund manager. And we find as a as a as a kind of as an approach, we get more out of it. Um, and we get more out of it in terms of the returns that we can generate for our investors, but also the outcomes for our entrepreneurs too. And, and that's something that is fantastic. So to your point on emotions and going through a deal and really challenging yourselves, when you're working in a VC firm, there is a real risk of groupthink as you mm -hmm. go through the process. And what we've got from this angel group and the subject matter experts around it is that we can have that challenge to that group think as we go through the process. And critically, when we decide to invest in a company, we will ask those angels who have the relevant experience whether they're going to invest their own cold hard cash in that deal. So it's an additional litmus test, a governance check that we're getting the right advice that people who really know at a granular level that technology or that industry are also committing to it. That's an additional tick in the box for us over and above all of the diligence that we've already committed to. So uh, there's, there's a lot in that, but um, I think it's such an, such an interesting area to, to, to unpick and explore. And, you know, I'm relatively early um, in my VC career, um, but I've got incredible amounts still to learn. And I think as a business, we're always testing ourselves on this point and, and always trying to improve and spot those, you know, understand what those blind spots are and, 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 um, uh, and, and, and make the best investment decisions. Do you require consensus in a buy decision? No. So for our venture fund, we actually um, we have five of us on the investment committee and we allow for one defender amongst mm -hmm. that. Um, I think that's important at early stage um, VC investing because at the end of the day, we're trying to build companies that are disrupting industries, right? You want to build a company that's going to be a, a global category leader in a given space. It's, it's it's not always going to be clear cut. I think even when you've got one dissenter, that's probably a good thing because you know that you're challenging status quo and that's what we've got to be alive to. So, so we allow for that in the process. 
you know, some, sometimes we have unanimous decisions and other times we have a dissenter and that's helpful. It's, you know, it's, as well as having a positive irritant through the process, it's helpful mm-hmm. because it makes us check for things that we wouldn't have otherwise checked for. So moving back to the personal um, in terms of, you know, our lives are, are multi-layered. Um, you can have an impact in society in many ways. Um, so running a business well, investing well, but obviously also you're a dad. Um, and a husband and, uh, yeah. you know, have to keep yourself happy and well in order to do all of these things. So I'm just interested, what ways have you found to balance your life being a father, you know, husband launching the fund, um, being active in the ecosystem? How, how do you do that? I, I'm not sure I know how, actually, to be quite honest. <laughs> if someone could give me a framework and a playbook to manage it, I would, I would be much appreciated. No, it is sort of... Um, it's slightly chaotic. Um, I think when you have a when you have a young family and you're busy on the tools and the day job, your greatest resource is time. Ultimately, you need to spend time in the business. You need to spend time with your family, and so suddenly you become incredibly efficient in everything that you do. As a result, um, I wouldn't say I have any um, advice for anyone out there. Um, I think I found that having a young family keeps me a bit more grounded. Keeps helps me realize what's important in life, uh, and that's and that and that's a good thing. I thought we might wrap up with uh, a few quick fire questions, like we normally do. Okay, um, just okay. to make it interesting and and um, life beyond the spreadsheets and the uh, early stage wrangles. Um, so, mm-hmm. Andrew, do you have a favorite band, singer, or album, and what does that mean to you? Yes, I do, and. Um, it's Elton John, and it's because of the memories that I have at home as a young kid, listening to Elton John, bopping around the kitchen to Crocodile Rock, and I was a big Lion King fan at the age of, sort of nine or ten, and listening to that 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 soundtrack. Um, and whenever I hear his music, I just think it's fantastic, so it has to be Elton John. Is there a favourite film or novel that you've seen or read more than twice, and why? So, yes, there is. I quite like apocalyptic-type movies. I love putting myself in that position of the main protagonist and thinking through what I would do in that situation. Uh, so I quite like sort of Kristen, Christopher Nolan movies. And in particular, I love Interstellar. I just think it grabs me, uh, speaks to me, and I love the sort of space exploration aspect of it. Everything everything about it, I think it's a fantastic movie. A favourite quote and why? I think it was Winston Churchill who said it, but it's um, success is not final, failure is not fatal. And I quite like that as a VC uh, investor. I think... In VC, you know, it's it's so often you have great deals uh, that suddenly go incredibly well and you think you're walking on water, uh, but equally the next deal that you do might be a sort of busted flush and it's a complete write-off. And I like that quote because it does remind you to, to, to be centred, to stay grounded. Nothing is ever the finished product and there's always something to, to, to move forward and learn from. Um, I also, by the way, um, my kids are now at school. My eldest is now at school. And the school motto is be kind, be kind, be kind, which I couldn't agree with anymore uh, for young children and also for adults. Because if you're kind and you treat people with kindness, uh, you will live a very happy, fulfilling life. That's fantastic. Um, Shout out to another podcast. Do you have a favorite podcast and why? When I do have time, um, I'm... Uh, my wife and I often listen to the the Restless Politics with Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. Um, they get some fantastic guests on there, and they go quite deep on some very complicated topics. Um, and it's 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 nice to have on when you're sort of got a long car journey. Do you have a favorite comedian? And also, this is somewhat selfish because I like to hear who likes what. And also, you're in the home of the Edinburgh Fringe, so <laughs> I know, I time. know. So no, we're blessed with lots of comedians coming to Edinburgh every year. Um, I'm going to go, because I am in Edinburgh, um, I'm going to go with a couple of Scottish comedians who I've loved over the years, both Billy Connolly and and, and, and more recently Kevin Bridges, uh, just to sort of shout out to the Scottish comedians. 
Um, but also one that I just love, the silliness of it all, is the Monty Python gang. And I just think that level of silliness transcends generations. And, you know, you can't not smile when you think of John Cleese in certain, <laughs> in certain roles throughout throughout his, his career. Um, uh, but I suppose they're more comedic. Uh, actors rather than com uh, comedians. Um, so yeah, I would go, I would go with those. I, I, I do enjoy um, comedy in any shape or form, to be quite honest. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you. for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time.